We read from our Bibles this morning from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7. We have here the sign that God gives to Ahaz concerning the coming of the Emmanuel. And we read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 14, which addresses that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. We hear God's inspired infallible word. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashtub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If he will not believe, surely he shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest, all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, 
by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines at the at a thousand silverlings, it shall be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall be briars and thorns. And in all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come forth the fear, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. We read God's word that far. We pray God bless that word to our hearts. In connection with that passage, as I stated, we turn to Lord's Day 14. In the back of our Psalters on page 9, question and answers 35 and 36. Question 35, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin excepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the phrase, born of a virgin, is one of the most astonishing statements ever made. Born of a virgin. Wicked Ahaz went his way to worship idols, and he went out of his way to do so. He was an idolater. He got the pattern of a pagan altar in Damascus, and he built a similar altar that he put in the temple in the place of the altar of burnt offering. And he was intent on worshiping idols. He finds himself in a very difficult strait. Powerful nations are rising up against him. He's filled with fear. God sends Isaiah to him. And requires of him, ask God for a sign. Ahaz won't do it. And therefore God gives him this sign through Isaiah. Now what's the significance of it? The significance of this sign is this. God is able to do what to men seems impossible. You find yourself currently in a situation where mighty nations are ready to pounce on you and destroy you. But this is the sign I give you. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Our God preserves his church. And God does so in ways that men and women cannot begin to fathom. In ways that are impossible of men. But all things are possible with God. And God works in the faith by which we lay hold on that wonder. Every Sunday we make this our confession as we recite the Apostles' Creed. It's easy for us to lose the wonder of it. That a baby was born 
who had no human father. That's a wonder. Every single baby, baby that's ever been born has a human father. God would now perform a wonder and he would cause a baby to be born in such a way that never had taken place ever in the history of the world. And so important this birth would be that for thousands of years the church would continue to make this her confession. As we face struggles and trials in life, as we face insurmountable obstacles, as we question how can this matter ever be resolved, by faith we lay hold upon this truth. Born of a virgin. God is capable of that which far surpasses our imagination. And the same God who caused the walls of Jacob to of Jericho to fall down, who parted the Red Sea, who parted the Jordan River so that God's people could pass over that dry land. He performed this greatest miracle and wonder that ever has taken place. He brought into this earth a man, a baby, born of a woman, and that woman had never had relations with a man. He brought into this earth a baby who did not have a human father. And God did that for your and my salvation. There are many wonders, many miracles that are set forth in the Bible. This is the central wonder that causes us to pause. And this is the wonder also that settles the dispute over miracles and wonders. Once and for all, if God is able to do this, then all of the rest pales in comparison. Beloved, we thank and we praise God for the faith by which we confess the virgin birth. And we look at that this morning. The virgin birth, noting the meaning of it, the necessity of it, and the profit of it. The catechism says, He took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Ghost. We're familiar with that history as it's recorded for us in the gospel accounts of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 of Luke 2. Mary, a young woman, likely in her teens, who had never known a man. And that meant she had never experienced sexual relations with a man. When she gave birth to Jesus, she was still a virgin, even though she was now married to Joseph. The Bible insists on that in Matthew one twenty-five, And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. That wonder serves as the foundation of the Christian faith. And for that reason, it's it's a wonder that the devil attacks and that the devil tries to undermine. A virgin gave birth. Now, critics of the Word of God are quick to point out that here in Isaiah 7, verse 14, the Hebrew word could also be translated young woman. And they're correct. The Hebrew is not as precise as is the Greek. They point out then that this is not talking about a virgin giving birth. This is talking merely about a young woman giving birth. Now again, that's true according to the etymology of the word that's used here in Isaiah 7 verse 14. But this passage itself demonstrates that there's no possibility of that explanation. The word can be understood to mean more than that. And clearly here, because of its reference as a sign, 
the, me, the word needs to mean more. Isaiah talks about a sign. A sign is a wonder. It's a miracle. It's something that points to some act, some work of God. It's no sign or no wonder that a mere young woman gives birth. Thousands of young women have given birth. Some who are mere girls have given birth. That's not a sign. That's not a wonder. The wonder is that a virgin conceived and gave birth. But secondly, the wonder as it's spoken of here and the fact that this is a unique wonder is pointed out by the name that is given. His name shall be called Emmanuel. That's a special name that identifies the child as God with us. No child merely born of a man and a woman can identify as God with man. They're not entitled to that name. This child is a special child. This child is a child set apart, very God and very man. And his conception and his birth make possible that wonder. But finally, the conclusive evidence also is found from the fact that in Matthew 1, verse 21, there the angel confirms that Isaiah 7, verse 14, clearly is talking about a virgin. The Greek is precise. And as the Greek word is used to refer back to the Hebrew word, it clarifies and provides commentary on it. And we understand from the history, the reality of it, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. They're espoused. He's ready to break that espousement. He's ready to put Mary away because he's convinced she must have committed some sin. He knows that he's not had relations with her. Therefore, it must be by some other man. That's when the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and informs Joseph of the wonder that's taken place. And he makes reference then to Isaiah 7, verse 14. The sign that God gave to Ahaz is now being realized. And Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14 in verse 23 of chapter 1. And there leaves no doubt as to the translation of this word. Young woman is not an option. The word clearly is virgin. A woman who has never had relations with a man will give birth to a baby. A baby that has a human mother and a divine father. So that that baby is able to be identified as God with man. Now the emphasis of the Lord's Day and the sermon this morning is not to emphasize the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's been repeatedly established in previous Lord's Days. The holy thing that would be born of her would be God, and thus the Son of God. But here the Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes the truth of his true, complete manhood. And it's important for us to understand both. He's very God, not only, but he's a real, righteous, sinless man. And that's the emphasis here that's set forth. Now, how is that set forth? First of all, from the fact that Jesus Christ is the flesh and blood of Mary. Notice that that emphasis also is found in all of the confessional statements that relate to the Incarnation. The Belgic Confession, especially in Article 18, makes specific reference to this fact. 
And the reason was because there was much confusion. There were many errors circulating about Jesus and about specific nature of Jesus. There were those who said that he was a mixture, a God and a man. Others said, well, he had a divine spirit and soul, but he had a human nature. And so there was all kinds of confusion which either denied that he was fully God or denied that he was fully man. And instead touted Jesus as a mixture of the two. And as a mixture, then he was not really like us because we have a human spirit, whereas he had a divine spirit or some other aspect. It was especially the Anabaptists that emphasized that Jesus was not of the flesh and blood of Mary, thinking that somehow that would corrupt Jesus. And so the Belgian Confession in Article 18 in that second paragraph makes specific reference to the Anabaptists who denied this. They said when the Holy Spirit worked in the womb of Mary, what happened was such a wonder that it was altogether a new creation. The baby didn't come from Mary. It wasn't flesh and blood of Mary, but it was merely implanted in the womb by the Holy Spirit. And so in other words, the Holy Spirit planted an embryo in Mary. And therefore, Mary just was the one carrying that embryo. But the baby wasn't actually of her flesh and blood. If that were the case, Jesus would not be like us in all respects. He would not be truly then the son of David. Because Mary was of the line of David and Jesus was to be of the line of David. God took Mary's seed and created his son out of that human nature. So that Christ, therefore, could be called the son of David who took the throne of David to everlasting. We read in that article, Therefore we confess in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptist to deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ has become a partaker of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is the fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, made of the seed of David according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, made of a woman, a branch of David, a shoot of the root of Jesse, a sprung from the tribe of Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham, since he took on him the seed of Abraham and became like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted, so that in truth he is our Emmanuel, that is God, with us. Referencing just a few of the many places in the Bible where prophecies were given concerning the nature and character of Jesus as out of David, as the son of David, it's insisted that he was of the flesh and blood of Mary. Now today, most Baptists would repudiate this error of the Anabaptist. But tragically, there are more, many Baptists, Evangelicals, even Reformed and Protestants who are willing to go even further. And they flat out deny the necessity and importance of the virgin birth. We'll look at some of those concerns later on. But because then Jesus was of the flesh and blood of Mary, he received then a nature just like ours. We could say, from a human perspective, Jesus looked like Mary. He didn't have an earthly father to resemble, only a mother. Usually a child is a mix of his dad and mom. Jesus had only the genes of his mother, and therefore would have resembled Mary. He received from Mary a nature, just like ours, except without sin. 
He had a human body, a human soul, a human mind, a human will. And that means very practically then, Jesus, as now a boy, as a human, had to learn. He sat at the feet of scholars who taught him, who tutored him. He discussed, he debated, he grew in wisdom and understanding. He prayed, not my will, thy will be done. As very man, he's able to represent us as our representative head. And as very man, he took upon himself then a real human nature. This emphasizes again, Jesus then was born, he wasn't created. There are all kinds of wrong understandings with regard to Jesus' incarnation. And the confessions address those different wrong perspectives in order to emphasize the truth. He was born of Mary and took then on himself our flesh and blood. Now why is this so important? If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he would have not been without sin. Now again, God is able to do marvelous things. And we know God is able to do whatever he determines. But God ordained that this would be the way in which he would bring Jesus into human flesh without sin. And that he would do so without the will of men. Our Savior did not come because of man. He did not come because of the will of men. Nobody can take credit for our salvation. God saves his people. And he does so through a marvelous wonder that allows for no one to take credit for. A virgin gives birth to the Savior. Now, he was born in such a way that he did not have original guilt or original pollution. Every baby that's born has original guilt and original pollution. The guilt comes from their person, the pollution from their nature. The guilt comes from father to son. God visits the iniquity of fathers upon the children. And so the father is the one who passes the original guilt onto his children. Jesus did not have an earthly father. He escaped that original guilt. He didn't have pollution. And he escaped pollution because of the wonder by which his conception was holy. Born of a virgin. Conceived of the Holy Ghost. His person being the person of the Godhead. The second person of the Trinity. Who's without sin. You and I as fathers are responsible for the guilt of our children. And that's a horrible thing. We pass on that guilt to our children. If not for Christ, none of our children could ever be saved. Christ is the only one able to remove that guilt and to save us and our children. And that's the contrast that's beautifully set forth in this Lord's Day as well. Why did Jesus have to be without sin? So that he could save me. In my sin. That's question 36. That he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. We all were conceived and brought forth in sin. That sin of our parents was passed on to us. But we have one who was born in a different way. 
whose conception was not like ours, so that through him we might have the wonder and the joy of our salvation. We learned it in catechism, and we confess it, that Jesus had one person, the divine person of the second person of the Trinity. Within that one person are two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. In Jesus are not two distinct persons, just one person, the sinless second person of the Trinity, two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. That human nature from Mary without sin. That divine nature from the Holy Spirit. One person with two natures. So that mysteriously then, Jesus is able to say, before Abraham I was. And we understand that. Because he is the second person of the Trinity, and because his divine nature is from everlasting, he existed even before Abraham. Sometimes he speaks in connection with that divine nature. Other times he speaks in connection with his human nature. And equally marvelous that is. For instance, when Jesus says concerning the time of his final return, that no man knoweth the day nor the hour, not even the Son of Man. And we say, what? How could Jesus not know when he's coming again? But he's speaking there from the perspective of his human nature. A human nature that is like unto ours, that doesn't know the future, doesn't know all things. So that the one person of the Son of God lived active and conscious with two distinct natures, a human and a divine. Now the person is the subject of all of our actions and experience. It's our person that sees and thinks and makes decisions. It's our person that dies. It's our person that's raised again in the final resurrection. Our natures change through age and the effects of sin. Our person remains the same. The divine person of the Son of God had two consciousnesses of his person. One divine, one human. And these two perfectly were united within that one divine person. Now, how were, they, how were they together? And again, through the ages, there's been all kinds of confusion concerning this because the natures are mixed together. And Jesus is set forth then as a God-man, a mixture of the two. But again, the trouble then is this. He then is not fully human as we because his human nature is different from ours. Neither the human nor the divine were essentially changed through the incarnation. They were not blended together. We could say even that, in a sense, the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, did not leave the bosom of the Father to become man. But according to the divine nature, he still is in the bosom of the Father, in a sense. While according to his human nature, he lies in the manger in Bethlehem. According to his divine nature, he's everywhere present. According to his human nature, he's only able to be one place at one time. According to his human nature, he grows up in Nazareth. He walks among us in the form of a servant. He learns the trade that his father, Joseph, was involved in. 
He preaches. He teaches. He died on the cross. He's raised up. He's exalted and sat at God's right hand. The divine nature is unchangeable. Jesus did not set aside the divine, nor was it in any way changed with regard to the human. In his human nature, Jesus was temporal. He was limited in power, limited in wisdom, limited in understanding, in the sense of having to grow. And yet in his divine nature, he's all-knowing, eternal, able to perform mighty wonders. A mystery that our minds have difficulty wrapping themselves around. Two natures subsisting within one person in such a way that they're not mixed together. They're not divided. At the same time, they're not separated. They're not difficult. And this is what gave occasion for the Chalcedon Creed. If you notice with regard to the Creed of Chalcedon, as it's quoted here on the insert, the phrases that are in italics, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Each of the natures retaining its own distinct qualities in such a way that the human nature never takes over the divine, the divine never takes over the human, but there's a perfect interaction and relationship between the two. Constant relation between his human mind and the mind of God, between his human will and the will of God, his human power and the power of the Almighty. And that's why he was able to endure painful, terrible sufferings that involved the pouring out of the vials of God's wrath on him without being crushed because he was sustained according to his divine nature. But it's also why he was able to feel then the feelings of our infirmities, tempted in every respect like as we, according to his human nature. Jesus escaped again pollution because he was born of a virgin. He escaped the guilt because his person is the second person of the Trinity. And he had no earthly father through whom that guilt was passed. So that when the angel operated in the womb of of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit was present there, no man was involved. And the operation took place according to a wonder of God. Now the Roman Catholic Church insists that Mary was without sin. And that's how Jesus is sinless. We understand that makes the problem even more difficult. How did Mary become sinless? The one who fathered Christ was the Holy Spirit who purged the human nature so that the child was a holy one. Mary was a sinner. And never does the Bible in any way place Mary as sinless. We reject that explanation. And that explanation is not necessary. The wonder of the virgin birth and the work of the Holy Spirit explain how Jesus was able to be sinless. 
The virgin birth then, beloved, was necessary so that this child could be and was the Son of God. Jesus repeatedly made that confession that he was God, that he was equal with God. He stood before the wicked Pharisees and confessed that he was before Abraham. He confessed that he himself was God. Now this is what makes the denial of the Trinity so serious. To deny the Trinity is to undermine then the divinity of Jesus Christ and his sinlessness. And we need to understand how relevant this is for us. This has been a plague to the Reformed churches, to our mother churches, for over 150 years. Back in 1857, the Christian Reformed churches separated from the Reformed churches of America. They had been together for some seven years after coming from the Netherlands, but they separated. One of the issues of their separation was because already back in 1857, there were those who were denying the virgin birth in the Reformed churches. They were not clear. They were leaving open the question that it wasn't really necessary. They claimed the virgin birth was not one of the essential doctrines of salvation. And if it was a stumbling block to people that were newly coming to the church, they wouldn't require of them to have to confess it. Today, that struggle continues. Reformed people continue to find appeal in non-denominational churches where ministers openly challenge or mock even the virgin birth. It's important for us to be aware of that. The virgin birth is that which we confess by faith. And this is an essential doctrine that sets forth the marvel and the wonder of our salvation. Salvation is not of man. Salvation is all of God. One of the fastest growing megachurches for years in the Grand Rapids area, which was growing largely in part of people leaving Reformed churches and joining it, was Mars Hill, pastored by Rob Bell. And Rob Bell wrote a couple books, Velvet Elvis in 2005 and then Love Wins in 2011. In his first book, he affirms the virgin birth, but then he says, I don't see the importance of the virgin birth. It's not really a key to the faith. It's not really necessary to confess as a believer. And then, as many religious books and even movies do in our day, he mocks it. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of doubt the virgin birth was really just a bit of mytholog- mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of the Mithra and the Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. What if that was seriously questioned? Could a person still love God? Could a person still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? He goes on then to affirm the virgin birth, but he does state that it's really not so serious. A denial of it is really not such a big deal. Now, referencing those Indian and Chinese religions, it's true that there were religions in India and in China that held to perspectives that had to do with a different idea regarding incarnation in their religions. But there's a huge difference 
which he does not acknowledge, between them and the Christian religion. Their idea of incarnation had to do with very, very strange situations. Appearances, perhaps, of a man. A God who maybe looked like a man, but usually it was by some kind of interaction with the gods, and it was some kind of a beast or some kind of a tremendous mixture between a God and a man that they would tout then as their Savior, their Lord. It had nothing to do with one who was very God and very man in the biblical sense which is set forth. We confess by God's grace that the virgin birth is our confession. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. To deny the virgin birth is to deny Christ as Savior. It's to deny Emmanuel, God with man. It's to cast the whole of the Bible into question. And now all the miracles, all the wonders are subject to dispute. Because if the virgin birth didn't take place, then who can prove that anything else that the Bible speaks of really is true? The virgin birth is set forth by God in His Word. And God gives us the faith to lay hold on it. And again, the crucial point is this. The virgin birth teaches us that salvation is of the will of God, not men. That as we find ourselves in a situation where we say, how can I be saved? My salvation is possible, not by myself. I can't find salvation through another creature. God says, here's the sign that I give you. You find yourself in an impossible situation. The enemies are powerful. They're rising up to destroy you. But I will raise up my son, born of a virgin, to bring about your salvation. Jesus Christ came not by men, not by the will of man, but by God. And that's the wondrous confession that we make. Our salvation is all of God. What we could never do, God did on our behalf. And he raised up a Savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, with regard to our birth, we are passive. With regard to Jesus' birth, he was active. Jesus himself was present with the triune God as the Father worked that conception in the womb of Mary. Jesus was present as part of the triune God. And so that in that sense... He was active, we would say, in his own conception. He came actively to do the will of his father. His conception, his birth, are part then of his active obedience to his father and part of the work of salvation he took up for those whom the father gave him. The father did not entrust his elect church to a mediator concerning whom he was not perfectly sure that he would be able to accomplish the work of redemption. God entrusted that wonder to the one who would accomplish it, the one who would be born without sin, the one who would be very God, very man, and the one who would accomplish the wonder of that salvation. And the very birth of the Messiah and the declaration of that birth, as we find it in the gospel accounts, we see the surety the certainty that he would accomplish the salvation for which he came. The angels don't come to the shepherds and say, oh, a Savior's been born and we think he can save you. They come with absolute certainty 
The Savior's been born. He is the one who will accomplish the wonder of salvation. The shepherds don't go forth doubting or questioning. They're given absolute confidence in this wonder. The wise men worship the babe with total assurance. And by faith, Simeon is able to cry out, My eyes have seen thy salvation. This little baby, thy salvation. The certainty of our salvation is found in the wonder of the incarnation, the virgin birth. The two natures could not be changed. They could not be divided. They have their unity in the person of the Son. This is God's doing, beloved. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is our joy and our rejoicing in the wonder of our salvation. What is the prophet then? The catechism directs us to the understanding that he's our mediator. And that's beautifully set forth in Article 26 of the Belgic Confession. The intercession that Jesus makes on our behalf. That he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. This is the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of Jesus' humiliation. There are five steps to that humiliation. His lowly birth, his lifelong suffering, his death, his burial, and his descent into hell. And now the Catechism takes up then those five aspects of his humiliation as we recite them in the Apostles' Creed. By Jesus' humiliation is meant his coming from heaven in order to live in a sinful world, to be under the guilt and shame of sin and death, to subject himself to death, to suffer its awful consequences, and to take upon himself the payment for the sins of his people. From heaven's glory, he went deeper and deeper into the experience of the wrath of God until at last he suffered the torment of hell itself for the sake of those whom the Father had given him. Now why did Jesus have to suffer such humiliation? So that we could have comfort in life and in death. He suffered that we might know our sins are covered. I've been redeemed. I've been delivered. The Catechism describes Jesus Christ as our mediator. We can't escape the guilt and the pollution of Adam. That guilt and that pollution affects us. We are conceived and born in sin. We're guilty and condemned even before we're born, before we even commit any actual sin. We're the objects, by nature, of the wrath of God as a result. A mediator stands between two parties and reconciles them. He brings them together. Jesus stood between an angry God and condemned sinners. And he reconciled them. He brought them together. The Son of God became a man so that he could represent us perfectly according to our own nature. And by his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God all my sin. Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, is the true mediator. He's able to reconcile to God the sinner lost in Adam, elect in Christ. And he restores that communion. He brings about that wonder. And having that mediator, having this wonder, why would we want anyone else? Why would we want Mary? 
Why would we pursue a different one? When God himself has given to us Jesus Christ, who is very God and very man, our Emmanuel. And therefore, we lay hold by faith upon him alone as our mediator. And again, that's the emphasis of Article 26 of the Belgic Confession. If then, starting in the middle of the first paragraph, we should seek for another mediator who would be well affected toward us, whom could we find who loved us more than he who laid down his life for us, even when we were his enemies? And if we seek for one who hath power and majesty, who is there that hath so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of his Father and who hath all power in heaven and on earth? And who will sooner be heard than the own well-beloved Son of God? He made a lowly entrance into this world. A more lowly entrance cannot be imagined. The eternal God, born in a stable, rejected of men. There was no room for Christ in the world. The natural world rejects him in their hearts. They have room for everything except Jesus Christ as Savior. But he prepared a place for himself in the hearts of his own. And he comes to save sinners. He comes to save sinners from their sin. Notice how personal the catechism gets. He is our mediator with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Everyone who confesses with sorrow my sin can also joyfully sing, My Savior. Not only do I know my sin, I have a Savior whom God has provided, His own Son, born of a virgin. He is able to take my sin upon Himself. He who knew no sin took my sin. You and I conceived and born in sin. There's no escape of ourselves. Here's our Savior. And beloved, therefore, the virgin birth is precious to us. The virgin birth is what separates him from us. He was like us in every way. He lived among us. He visited people. He went to church. He is involved in all the kinds of things we're involved in. He knew all the struggles that we involved. But there was a difference. He was Emmanuel, God with man. He was sinless. He had no human father. And as Emmanuel, he takes hold of us then and he lifts us out of this earthly life in order to bring us into the joy of the heavenly. All the sorrows, all the struggles are able to be understood in the context of his power, his greatness, his love as he brings us into the joy and wonder of that life that's everlasting. In him, beloved, the full realization of God's covenant is sure. There's no question, no doubt of it. God's covenant is not dependent upon man. If it were, it would be in vain. God's covenant is dependent upon the Emmanuel, God with man. Adam failed. Christ cannot and will not fail. He brought the perfect sacrifice. He accomplished the wonder of our salvation. And he saves to the uttermost Those who through him go to God. Beloved, with God, nothing is impossible. We struggle with our sin. We struggle with the consequences of that sin. 
We struggle in our lives at times. With God, nothing is impossible. With Mary sometimes, we wrestle with that in our mind. Mary pondered these things in her heart. She couldn't understand or fathom either the wonder of it. But God works faith, not only in Mary, but in you and in me, by which we believe and confess. This, the marvel and wonder of our salvation. This is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We have a Savior, and our salvation is sure, and He will certainly finish what He's begun and bring us to the fullness of the glory that awaits. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come into the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come into the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, where ye have heard that it should come, and already now is in the world. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ is come into the flesh is of God. By God's grace, we make that our confession, and we confess we are of God. And we confess then that He is our Emmanuel, God with us. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of our salvation, for the marvel of thy work of grace in providing us a Savior in Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. We thank thee for the certainty of the work that he performed and continues to perform by his Spirit. And we thank thee for the blessed assurance that our loved ones who have gone before us and we ourselves are able to live with that glorious hope and expectation of the fullness of joy in life everlasting. Amen.